I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Well, I want to welcome everybody to this um, very special webinar uh, on the aftermath of the 2022 elections. Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm Jeff Sickinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center. Uh, we're an educational center located here at Ashland University in Ashland, Ohio. We run programs around the country and here at the university for students, teachers, and citizens in the history and principles of America and what those mean for today. And we really think of this webinar as part of that mission, trying to understand uh, what's happening out in our contemporary world and perhaps understand it in light of um, the American political tradition and American political principles. Um, we really think at Ashbrook that education is not simply about information and definitely not about indoctrination, but about conversation. And we really think that's the way that you can discover for yourself um, the truth. So we invite you into that conversation tonight. We're gonna to be having a great conversation. You, you can join us through the Q&A function uh, there on your screen. Please feel free to ask your questions. We'll try to get to as many as we can. Sometimes we get a lot of them, not surprising, especially on a topic like this and with a guest like this, but we will try to get to as many of those questions as we can. For the conversation tonight, I'm joined by an old friend of mine and a, a good friend of the Ashbrook Center, uh, Professor James Caesar. Jim is the Harry Bird Professor of Politics at the University of Virginia, where he has been now for some time, uh, doing great work at UVA, my alma mater. I, Jim was my, I was fortunate to have him as my thesis advisor for my senior undergraduate thesis. And it was an experience that really changed my life. And so I always have been in Jim's debt uh, for that. And he's also the founder of the Program on Constitutionalism and Democracy at UVA, which is a terrific program designed to uh, help undergraduates and even graduate students and postdoctoral fellows get a deeper understanding of the political principles and history that have defined the American political tradition. Jim got his uh, BA from Kenyon College and his PhD from Harvard University. He teaches courses at UVA and has taught them for a number of years on American politics and the American political tradition and American political thought. He is a, a terrific teacher. Uh, again, I had him in seminar, and it was one of the best experiences of my academic life, for sure. He is also an author, a prolific author. Just a few of the books that Jim has written, a very famous book, Presidential Selection. Another book, one of my favorites, actually, Liberal Democracy and Political Science uh, by Johns Hopkins. And then Nature and History in American Political Development from Harvard University Press. Um, 
I think it's fair to say, maybe Jim would dispute this, but I think it's fair to say that one of Jim's primary concerns as a political scientist has been to understand what makes a healthy democratic society and how we can promote that. Uh, I kind of think of him as a modern day Alexis de Tocqueville uh, <laughs> here with us. <laughs> and I know it's this person that Jim has studied, the great French political thinker. James Caesar, thank you for joining us. I'm, I'm happy to be here. That's a very nice introduction. I'll only correct one thing, Jeff. You mentioned that we're here in the aftermath of this election, but it's not over yet. Ah. <laughs> other months, and that will be the decisive outcome. But otherwise, yeah. well done. <laughs> Thank you. It's really true. Um, you know, I was looking at so much commentary today, listening to it on the news, reading it online. Let me just read this to you. I was struck by this is the conservative commentator, Roger Kimball, who many of our listeners may know. He, he This is his essay from this morning. He says, how then to explain what happened? I frankly do not know. Robert Bork, quoting Justice Antonin Scalia, titled one of his books, A Country I Do Not Recognize. Perhaps that is a starting point. I just do not know. I think there's a lot of people out there right now say, I don't understand the meaning of this election. Given the mixed results that have clearly come in, do you have a sense that there is a meaning to, the, to these results? Well, I think we can uh, begin by saying that a part of the problem may be that the expectations that was created by the media and the pollsters, all of which have tremendous problems, created the idea that this uh, could very well be a, a huge victory for the Republicans. And uh, it didn't turn out that way. So uh, the fact that it didn't turn out that way may, may be a fact that the, uh, the people who were polling don't quite do it accurately, and the people who interpret it don't do it accurately. And we see that happening, and we say that we can't figure it out. It's not reality that went, went astray here. It's something different. That, that's one thing. But there is something uh, quite unusual. You have all of these issues that were brought up over the course of the, uh, of the campaign, in which uh, it seems that the Republican position was very much uh, the majority position nationwide. I'm speaking of crime. I'm speaking of inflation. I'm speaking of what's happening on the border. I'm speaking of education. All these were running in direction of uh, what the Republicans wanted. And maybe the only thing that worked uh, in favor of the, the Democrats uh, may have been the abortion issue and a few other things. So we would expect with those feelings that the Democrats would uh, be trailing significantly and the Republicans would have a wave. And that didn't occur. And I think that uh, Kimball, by saying he doesn't know, um, uh, reflects the, the difficulty of coming to terms with, uh, with, with that reality. So, so that would be, I think, a, 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 a strong reason. On the other hand, this is the final point. Democrats all along, sometimes sheepishly, they did lay out a, a case for why they think that uh, things were going pretty well, all things considered. And it's uh, maybe a case that is hard to understand, given what people were thinking of so many other issues. But, but still, they did have this feeling, and it turned out that there was a lot more people who felt that way than than we could have imagined. So I would maybe think uh, I wouldn't trouble myself as much as Kimball did, but say it's a little bit paradoxical. 
we're getting questions already, uh, not surprisingly. I wanted to get to one because I think it's connected to the point you just made. Um, one of our listeners wants to know, why did the red wave not materialize? Was it, as you're suggesting, kind of a, a misapprehension of reality? Or was there a, a, a shift in, in reality that we didn't catch? So, for example, the forces of 2016 that propelled Donald Trump to the presidency, had those forces sort of petered out by the time we get to 2022? Or is there something else going on? Well, I begin with the premise that uh, the, 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 the conclusion that we found in this election did not happen in the last five days. In a way, we say, oh, the Republicans were ahead by all this and something changed. That, that didn't happen. So the whole interpretation of what was going on was partly partly false for a number of different reasons. For example, in many of the last elections, the polls had always underestimated the amount of votes that the Republicans had. And uh, uh, pollsters uh, have compensated for that by giving uh, more expectation that the Republicans would have a higher score than showed in the polls. So that's a problem, I think, with polling. Modern polling is a, a very difficult thing. It's, it's not worth as much as it once was. The main problem is the cell phone. You used to have a phone in every house in the 1970s and 80s, and if you didn't reach the person on the first call, you called again. This isn't how this works today. Think of how often you turn off your phone, how often it's sitting in your pocket. They have so many tricks that they use now to try and compensate for the difficulty of, uh, of, of cell phones that um, we really can't rely on the, on the reliability of, uh, of a sampling in polls. And so what happens is pollsters try and do the best they can, but um, I think that their, their outcomes are faded from the beginning. And that, that's what we see. I, the Democrats were probably, as we can think of it, a lot higher up than, than everyone gave them credit for for a long time in this election. Now, going back, to you mentioned the, the earlier things. We can get into to, to that later, what's happening in the country as a whole. But I think that's the, the main issue is we put so much faith in, in a product, namely polling, which can't uh, have the accuracy that people expect. What about the process uh, of the election? By that, I mean starting at the beginning with primaries. We've got another question coming in that says, wondering if you predict or expect any significant change in the primary process. The, the person says, in their opinion, that, that was extremely significant in 2022. I mean, you've done a lot of work in presidential selection, obviously. The primary process, did that contribute to what we see in these results? Now, uh, the primary process, uh, you know, one could be speaking of the primary process for the presidency. That's probably what most people have in mind. But we've also had the primary process that's going on for, for the offices of uh, governor and a member of the House and member of the Senate. And there have been if, uh, real efforts to try and uh, uh, alter or change the, those processes. For example, in, in Atlanta, in, in Alaska, they have votes now where you, you, you're not, you vote in a way twice by voting once. You get your first choices, and if no one gets a majority, they throw out some, and then they bring in the, your second and third choice. So when you're voting, you have two or three choices. All sorts of old things have been discussed to try and make the choices that come out of primaries um, less polarized and more moderate. That, that's been the effort that people have had. Can we manipulate or change the thing from a simple plurality to some system which brings people together in, in the primaries where they're more likely to be moderate candidates? 
And I'm not sure that that's going to work. What's happened in Alaska uh, didn't work. I'm not sure it's a good idea, but uh, th that's that's part of the system. The presidential process, I mean, there we've seen a, a, a change in uh, the way things have worked. Um, I mean, that was 2016 was extraordinary when you go back to that. Whether it'll ever happen again, I don't know. 2016, really, if you recall, no one in the Republican Party except maybe at the last minute, Jeff Sessions uh, was really for Donald Trump. He won by winning the votes of the popular people, but he never had the support of the main people in the party. And that's a real break from how presidents have been chosen in the past. Even though they've gone through primaries, they had to have support of members of their own party. And, and, and Trump didn't, in a way, captured the party um, uh, by going over the heads of the party leaders. And if you look at the Democratic race in 2016, I know that Hillary won, but in, in a way, the, the most interesting thing in 2016 is that could have happened on the Democratic side. Bernie Sanders almost won the election without much of appeal. So we had this sort of a rising of people who weren't listening to the parties and uh, were willing to go in their own direction. Whether that will become the wave of the future, I don't know. There are a lot of political scientists who call for uh, a return to stronger parties, that the smoke-filled room, now maybe the marijuana smoke-filled room, is, is the, should be the governing factor. They bring that up. Uh, uh, they may have something to say in terms of the quality of the choice, but I don't see this happening. Uh, you might like that, but, but it's not happening. It's hard to go back on a democratic change, very hard. It, the primaries did, though, end up and end up selecting for, for example, for the Senate races. Um, I'm thinking here in our home state of Ohio, the primary ended up uh, the Republicans ended up selecting a candidate that was backed by that was endorsed by Donald Trump. And one of one questioner wants to know um, whether the effect that Donald Trump had, in your opinion, on the both the selection of candidates in various races and sort of more broadly on the tone of the election. I mean, it was clear, for example, the Democrats wanted to make the, the, the even these midterms in some ways about Trump. Yeah, I mean, Trump is a, a sui generis, as we say, uh, in, in every respect, meaning that he's, he's unique. And he brought something unique to American politics. Some things you could say were healthy, some things we could, you could say are deep, deeply prob problematic. Um, he has his personal following, which was exacerbated, I think, by uh, parts of the way that he was treated while he was president. I think, you know, the way he was treated in, in, in many respects, uh, as we've learned after the, the election, was uh, in some ways unfair. And now people are reacting to this. And of course, January 6th is a, another great event. Uh, they follow him in the belief that he rep represents uh, a, a true following, which wasn't accurately reflected in, in the election. And that's bound him to a large number of people who say what he says goes. He, he has the proper approach. I'm not sure if we'll see candidates like that in the future uh, uh, on a regular basis. Most people running for uh, the presidency, when you go back and look at all of them, are um, fairly straightforward people. Um, and and Trump, Trump is unique. He has qualities and uh, problems. Mm -hmm. um, for the Republicans, as you said, there were Republicans, um, people like Newt Gingrich, who know a lot about politics and help to, you know, 
create a, a significant uh, political change back in the 90s, you know, with the contract with America and the, the significant change in the, in the U.S. House that Gingrich helped to shape. Obviously, the guy knows politics, knows elections, but people like Newt Gingrich on, were talking about a, a, this very significant wave. Um, they misread something. May, did they misread the electorate? Did they misread the Republican Party? What was it? Yeah, I'd say they misread uh, uh, this, where the electorate uh, the electorate was, uh, and that's the problem. Now, you, there are certain things that you should keep in mind. It would have been hard to have a huge wave, given where we started from. Often these waves, you have 90 seat changes in some instances, 60 seat changes. That's when one party, let's say the, the part, the out party, the party not of the president, uh, you know, is way, 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 way behind. Uh, and it's in a way easier to catch up. We started this at uh, almost par. You know, it was like 220 to 212. So three or four seats in the House would have changed the outcome uh, of this last election. So it's hard to make up grounds when both parties uh, are fighting each other and they're starting from, from near parity and they have near parity behind them. So it's uh, th that's one point. Uh, maybe the expectation of a, of a huge wave was uh, way too sanguine from the point of view of, uh, of, of Republicans. Also, I think, uh, you know, they began to listen to the pollsters. I've already mentioned this. And people started talking to each other. So strangely enough, you could say that the Republicans uh, uh, towards the end and throughout the last month were in a kind of bubble, uh, mostly the bubble that we have here today. That's the kind of hole where uh, everyone's talking to saying the same thing. Um, um, most of the times with, uh, with those instances, it's been uh, on the other side that uh, the Democrats are the ones who have, have the bubble. And they certainly do when it comes to many of the issues. And they're talking to themselves. And you say, what are they saying? It's, it's not strange. The, the Republicans also, it seems, uh, were trapped in a kind of bubble and kept speaking to each other and kept exaggerating what was going to happen beyond what reality would uh, allow. Um, we, a number of questions about the turnout and issues that may have driven turnout. So uh, one of our listeners is wondering, you know, in that closely evenly divided electorate, it, it, especially in a midterm election, it's not just what a public opinion is, but the intensity of that opinion. Who will actually show up to vote? Who will actually come out in an off-year election? And this person wonders, uh, did the states that had abortion-related election issues bring out significant number of Democrat voters? Did clearly the Democrats... The Democratic Party made the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs case and the abortion issue a centerpiece of almost every campaign that they ran across the country. But do you think that or and these ballot issues, I'm thinking of, for example, in the state of Michigan, did that help to drive Democratic turnout? Yeah. Um, well, uh, well for, for starters uh, on all of this, this is what the uh, the the analysis of the polls seem to suggest, you know, because you ask what's the issue that's important that you voted for. And it turns out that a lot of people said uh, uh, abortion. I'm not sure that uh, that that's true, uh, that that's the real reason. I think a lot of people uh, you could imagine among those people who voted the Democrat this time, that for some reason or other, all things considered, they preferred the Democratic Party and then asked 
what's an important issue. They think of something that uh, th that's significant to them, but um, not, it's not really the reason why they voted uh, uh, for Democrats. Some of it, yes, but it isn't as they went in and said, abortion's it, and if I don't get it, I'm going to vote for Republicans. I don't think it works that way. There are a lot of people who wanted to vote Democrat, and they give that as the answer to the question of why they did it. So I'd be careful uh, with, with those kinds of uh, responses to, to our polls. Very tricky kinds of issues. So a little bit of a caution on, on, on that. On the question of turnout, the turnout this time so far as I think was, was quite high for an off-term election. Uh, I haven't looked at the exact statistic, but I think it was very high. And a lot of people voted, and um, it, it, it was obviously a contested election. Before we continue with our conversation, I think it's important to take a moment and tell you about our undergraduate honors program in the liberal arts here at Ashland University. Hi, I'm Rich Police, Associate Director of Student Programs at the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Scholar Program is an honors program located at Ashland University for undergraduate students with an interest in politics, history, and economics. Modeled after a classical liberal education, you will read the great texts, not textbooks. Your classes will be conversations, not lectures. Conversations with other students, with your professors, and with great thinkers and statesmen from throughout human history. If you or a young person you know are passionate about life's important questions, if you want an education that emphasizes discovery, if you value liberal education and the principles of freedom it upholds, then this is the place for you. To learn more, visit us online at ashbrookscholar.org. For the Republican Party now, uh, it, it looks like they'll probably take the uh, the House back, um, even if just by a narrow margin. As you said, they only needed a few seats to do that. And even with redistricting and moving up seats to states like Florida, they're going to gain they gain those seats. So it looks likely that McCarthy will probably be the next Speaker of the House. Could be that the Republicans will gain control of the Senate. But again, it's going to be very narrow. It's just moving a little bit this way, that way. Looking forward from this election, what do you think 2022 means for the Republican Party for the next couple of years? Well, the big issue comes back to the same thing as Donald Trump. Are, uh, uh, is, is Trump going to run? Obviously, he's, he's already indicated that uh, he's going to make an announcement and it's probably or so as people have said that, that he will run. So, so, so that that's really the issue. Or um, will he somehow conclude that this is a, that his time has passed, and that he's going to st step out of it? So that's the, the 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 main starting issue. So you could say it's Trump and his hold over a certain part of the De Republican Party um, on one side, and it's the performance of uh, DeSantis in Florida on the other side, which was a remarkable performance. I mean, Florida. It's true, you know, you had a lot of people coming from uh, other places to live in Florida, but but all that said, it's quite remarkable. He had, he won by a huge amount, and people uh, uh, were were highly impressed with his uh, his his governorship in in Florida. So you have, have two forces that are contending with each, maybe contending with each other. Whether DeSantis will uh, challenge Trump is another thing. I had sort of thought earlier on nothing against 
Trump. I don't want to give my opinion one way of, of, of everything that he stood for. I kind of thought that he would fade over the last two years. So there's a, a misunderstanding. Uh, I, I thought he would uh, slowly slip away, and he hasn't. There's some ways in which you could say that this election hurt Trump more than it hurt to, uh, uh, than, than people think. Some of the people that he backed did not win. For example, the Wizard of Oz in, in Pennsylvania, he, he, he didn't win uh, for a number of reasons. And, and, you know, it's pretty hard to think of losing to Fetterman, but there, there were reasons for that. And in other places, the candidates that uh, Trump supported won uh, the, the primaries in many of the cases, but they weren't able to win the election. You could have said the, the person that, that uh, these people uh, defeated, the other Republicans would have been stronger candidates, maybe. So um, we'll see whether, whether his candidacy fades. Um, he's, he's a strange personality, and I think you have to look at it not simply from the point of view of political logic, which is one thing that obviously drives candidate, but something about his personality, which uh, produces, I say, some some uh, remarkable um, uh, positive things, but uh, some real problems on the other hand. So, uh, if you if you could make, give a good psychological portrait of Trump, which no one has ever done to my satisfaction, uh, you have a better answer to that question. <laughs> well, the does Trump, let's say it's Trump versus DeSantis, at least sort of not necessarily running against each other, but kind of the that's the Republican Party right now. Right. What's striking to me is your analysis is, you know, a lot of people think, and Donald Trump actually said, I created Ron DeSantis. He was at 3% in the polls before I endorsed him and all this sort of thing. And now he's he's risen. Um, they They are in many ways similar in the sense that, you know, DeSantis is clearly identifies himself as a conservative. He he clearly is a fighter. He likes to take pick fights and, and does that. Now, he also has been a successful governor and pushed a legislative agenda, of course. But in some ways, their style is not that much different. Um, I don't think DeSantis tweets like Trump did. Uh, but But there's some similarities to them. Uh, what's striking to me is what about the Mike DeWine wing of the Republican Party? I mean, DeWine won here in Ohio the governorship by about 25 points. It was a crushing win. True. Is there is there that wing left, and will it be relevant at all going forward in the next two years? I think uh, on this point, almost all Republicans could support DeSantis. They might not be their first choice, uh, he might be too conservative in some ways, but I think almost all of them could get behind him. If Trump is the nominee, he's going to have fervent support of some part, but there's a large uh, portion uh, of the electorate of the Republican Party, um, Mitt Romney and others, and Liz Cheney. I don't know where you want to put her, but uh, no, there's a part that, that that's enough. Even even people who like him in some ways say he he did something significant at that time that no one else could do. And that that's true. He began a kind of um, realignment of the of the character of the Republican Party, moving it from a rich man's party to a party of the working class. I don't know. Uh, DeSantis could have done that at the time. He he is he created that that model, and for that he that uh, was a remarkable uh, achievement. But there was all the other things that went with it: the attacks at the time on Hispanics, unnecessary. The uh, the demagoguery that was part of his his campaign, um, 
the, the, the use, for example, this is a small thing to mention in, in uh, 2022, but he, he was the first candidate, the first presidential candidate who started swearing uh, on, on the course of the whole campaign. We, we don't recognize this anymore. Everyone does it, but uh, a whole new style. And that brought him attention, but it also brought him enemies. DeSantis has none of those problems. He's, he's uh, co conservative in many ways like Trump, um, but uh, he's also a straight line uh, uh, politician without any of those disadvantages. So that, that's kind of the, the layout be, between the two. And do you think there's a place for um, the, call it the establishment Republican, the center, center right Republicans of the kind like Mike DeWine in Ohio or um, others you might think of? Do you think they have a place in, in the Republican Party going forward, or are they going to be on the margins? I think they'll be much more than on the margins. When you look at the, um, the DeWine score and, and other Republicans who, who, who ran, is um, they will have a place, but they're shifting too. I don't know exactly De DeWine because I'm not, not from Ohio, but the Republican Party has really changed its identity after 2016 from a party that was more or less associated with the at least the image of it was of of the wealthier um uh people who were concerned mostly with producing more goods and services to a much more populist party which was concerned with the, the working man the working person able strangely enough despite trump's own uh views in 2016 he was the one who's been able to open it up and, and has opened it up to far more support from Hispanics. We'll see that even in this election, uh, this 2022, far more, su more, more support, it seems, from, uh, fr from African-American males and uh, maybe a few females as well. Um, so uh, he's, he's responsible for, 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 for all that, which is a, a great accomplishment. But um, I, I think that the, the mainstream of the Republican Party uh, we'll, ha we'll have a strong role to play. I think, for example, you could imagine DeSantis working well enough with someone like McConnell. He's not going to start attacking him. And you could certainly imagine DeSantis working very well with someone like Mike Pence, whom Trump in his ire, uh, after Pence served him well for four years, uh, uh, Trump attacked him viciously. Th those are the things that are personalities of Trump, that he, that he has to strike at people. And uh, they add to the the uh, tensions that exist within the Republican Party. I don't think that happens with uh, with DeSantis. DeSantis, I've met uh, uh, once or twice, and um, he is an extremely intelligent person. Um, he went to Yale and everything like that, but he went to Yale and he learned something. And he knows about our founders uh, in, a, in a very deep way. I saw him answer questions on that at a, an event a number of years ago. Uh, without any notes and everything. And he's, he's studied these things. He's rare among the politicians for his knowledge of American uh, political thought, I would say, which may be of interest to you and to the uh, Ashland Center. So what about for the Democrats? A lot of Democrats are breathing a big sigh of relief. A lot of them uh, saying, we told you so. The issues that we cared about abortion, the, the President Biden talking a number of times about the threat to democracy. Um, even if those were just the issues that were sort of sizzling in the media, the the Democrats did not lose a lot of support in at least key states like Pennsylvania, where Fetterman won. Um, what does the what does this mean 
for the Democratic Party. And I think we even have a question now. What does it mean for Joe Biden for 2024? Yeah, um, I'm good at uh, um, bad conclusions and my uh, uh, famous for those, I would say. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, I uh, certainly thought before that uh, th this election that uh, Biden would not run run in uh, the next election. So, so that could be wrong. I mean, we had a press conference today and he indicated that he, he might run. I, I still have my doubts whether that, that will occur, uh, whether he will be. Uh, the, the Democratic Party, is a, it, it really doesn't have a star. That's the extraordinary, extraordinary thing. There's no compelling uh, personality who has a large following. Now, you could say AOC is kind of a star in her own way or a starlet, uh, but uh, th think of uh, uh, of the Congress of the Congress and people in Congress. How many could you pick out that really stands out? Now, of course, people sometimes make their, uh, their their reputation over the course of the campaign. The one who stands out most is Bernie Sanders, but um, he's probably may maybe past the age limit where he could easily compete next time. But uh, we we don't have a star, so I, I, it's hard to know where the Democratic Party will be on the, the question of what person. What person could could be co compelling? And as for the issues, I mean, uh, I thought, and I I, I still think that uh, the 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 far left of the Democratic Party, which ran the has run the party, and as Biden really has been the, the 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 one who has followed the left wing of the Democratic Party to a T after the last election. Surprisingly, we thought he was going to be a, a, a moderate president. On the contrary. He's followed the, the left wing of the Democratic Party, but I still think uh, it's a it's a a, a a minority even within the Democratic Party. And what surprised me over the last few years is how um, the Democrats, even though they controlled the uh, the, the the large uh, a large part of the, the the Congress and they had a majority in in the in the, in the House of Representatives, I asked where is the spokesman in this group for moderate Democrats? Who is the person? who in a way represents the moderate Democrats, who after all, uh, there were a lot of them that came in in the last presidential election that came in as moderates. Uh, th th there's no one who stood out in this way. The one who tried to do it this well was in, in Ohio, was Ryan in a way started talking this way at the end. And it was so surprising. Here's a Democrat who's breaking with part of the party. Um, but but there is no one uh, like that. And uh, the, the ones who have controlled this, I think it's, has been the left. And that's a, a part of the fact that they're kind of interesting characters. Um, they have a few big mouths who uh, uh, control things, and they have the media on their side. That's the, the other point, is the whole, uh, you could say woke culture, if you want to use that word, but large numbers. Look at our universities. They are filled, but they're filled, uh, the, all the major universities, with a, a kind of a woke way of looking at things. It's as if it's a different world from the rest of the American populace. And uh, they're the ones who uh, have a, a firm grip on parts of public opinion. Or look at the newspapers, nothing against it, but um, uh, if you look at the New York Times or the Washington Post which are and the Los Angeles Times, it's incredible what they cover or what they deliberately don't cover. Um, it, 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 it's not the reality that exists in the world. So they're able to shape a good deal of, of opinion. I would think that the moderate Republicans would have to find a, a strong candidate, uh, assuming that Biden is not going to run in the next election.
Mm. So you really are thinking that the this align this realignment that started with Trump in 2016 with sort of working class uh, voters, a lot of people, for example, here in Ohio, moving to the Republican Party, and the coastal elites uh, who may have voted Republican in the past continue to go to the Democratic Party. That shift that happened in 2016 is not going to unshift. It's going to continue and and in some ways strengthen. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, what is the Democratic Party today? This isn't the criticism, but the Democratic Party, the main part of it, it's the party of the educated. Uh, and the more educated, the more, the more they vote dem Democratic. And that's a larger portion of the population. They thought it was going to be going back 10 years. They thought you could add uh, with the educated. They would still talk about their support of the common man, but they're really not the party of the common man. The Republican Party is. They thought they could add to the to, to the growing number of the educated and the wealthy, maybe not the Midwestern wealthy, but the coastal wealth, wealthy people are mostly Democrats as well. They thought they could add to a two groups that would assure their dominance. One, of course, was African-Americans who were always more than 90 percent uh, in favor of the Democrats. And the other, the key group is Hispanics. But uh, what, what we found in the last uh, few years is that the Hispanics are not quite as reliable, not nearly as reliable to the Democratic Party as was thought. And a lot of people who had written books in the first decade of the 2000s arguing that the, uh, the Democrats uh, were going to be able to add huge numbers of Hispanics, which after all are a much larger group than African-Americans, that that would solidify things for the Democratic Party forever. But the the the, the uh, Hispanic group is moving away somewhat from the Democratic Party, coming closer to parity, and that's a situation that that changes a lot. It puts the Republicans in a somewhat stronger position than they once were, and has led to a many uh, uh, political scientists who once favored this idea of uh, of uh, uh, the the Hispanic Democrat. It's led them to uh, to to shift. In fact, one famous one, Roy Teixeira, uh, left and, and, and now is working with AEI, American Enterprise Institute, in a way pointing out that the thesis that they, they propounded uh, isn't correct. Uh, they're beginning to act more like a, an, uh, many other groups that have come in and eventually shifted position. I heard, I heard him say once that um, he, he the, the Hispanic uh, community, he said, needs to be treated like aspiring immigrants. Yeah, I mean, um, large portions are that way. And, and of course, the border issue and uh, has solidified that a little bit more. We'll see how many voted for uh, um, Republicans this time. But I think some shift to Republicans is inevitable. And um, and uh, uh, lots of things about the, the Spanish, as people was pointing out, um, does orient them a little bit more towards the uh, Republicans. First of all, they're, they're middle class making their way up. They want to compete in this country and, and make good. That's what immigrants have already. That's the great, great attraction to immigrants, uh, most immigrants that have they've come here. So they can come to America and they can say, you know, I can make it here. Uh, despite who I am and where I started from. And if I can't make it here, my kids can make it here. And that's what they want. So in, in that sense, I think they're very much like that. You go back and look at other groups. They started the same way and they they moved uh, to very much to the mainstream of American, uh, center of American political thought. 
What about, uh, we have a, another question saying, what about another group that seems to be emerging and is certainly powerful in certain states, which is Asian Americans? Um, that seemed like, again, that was a, a group, a community that had been moving toward the Democrats, but there has been a very concerted effort by Republicans to woo them. And there have been some candidates, I'm thinking in Southern California, for example, Republicans found really outstanding candidates from Asian American background who then won seats, for example, in Orange County and held those seats in this last election. What's your view, the questioner asks, of Asian Americans politically? There, there may be only half the size or less of African Americans, but they are growing. Where, where is their home? I mean, everyone in California for this period was a Democrat because they were from California. So, so that was that was kind of part of it for the time being. But when you look at it, take a step back, and you and you can see as Asian Americans move to other um, uh, other parts of this uh, uh, of America that their views uh, are, are going to change as well. And um, I think it's important to note that this is connected with this affirmative action program now. Asians um, who are ve very high on, on ach achievement and have the uh, 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 highest scores on SATs or not, they're being they're being discriminated against in the case of uh, what's happening in uh, admissions to Harvard and to North Carolina. And a lot of P Asians are angry at this. The, the party that's more on their side on this issue is the Republican Party that wants to and this color uh, concern and uh, admit people on the basis of their merit. That's in the interest of Asians. So um, I think we'll see a, a shift. And also, if you look at the whole uh, number of people who are running for office, this is a key thing, I think. The Republican Party has really undergone a, a massive shift in the, the sorts of people that ran for office this time. There are a lot of blacks running for office uh, as Republicans, which is kind of unusual. And um, uh, a, a lot more African-Americans who are among the intellectual elite, they, they get a place to speak and everything on Fox News and everything, showing that there's a, a larger uh, presence in this intellectual class of, of black Americans. And certainly with Asians, they're, they're entering into the to, to run for office as well. The Republican Party doesn't look like like it did before. And you're going to have these caucuses that emerge in Congress where you'll actually have more than one African-American in a, in, a, in a Republican caucus uh, for, for one party or another. Yeah, it's it's no it's not uncommon now. I'm thinking of uh, Representative Donald's in uh, Southwest Florida representing Naples. Uh, looks like John James will probably have one in Michigan. So, uh, and, and those are definitely not majority minority districts. Yeah. Those are suburban districts. Yeah, I mean, Florida itself is a, is a kind of phenomenon too, which is coming into being. And there um, with, with DeSantis's victory and everything, you have a huge portion of, uh, of Hispanics in Florida that are not tied to the Democratic party. And are, many of them are running for offices, including the mayor, uh, 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 that just won the mayor in, in Miami as well. Very uh, um, well-spoken and very intelligent guy. Um, the Florida result. Florida had, Bill Nelson had been a Democratic senator from Florida, kind of centrist Democrat. Um, I think Ron DeSantis won in 2018 by a sliver. 
a sliver. And then he wins, as you mentioned, by I think it's almost 20 points, 19 points or something. Part of that has to do with the guy he ran against, Charlie Crist, right? But it seems like there has been, let me ask you this, and we have a question about Ron DeSantis here, I think several. Um, is Ron DeSantis changing Florida or was a changing Florida responsible for Ron DeSantis? How do we explain the DeSantis phenomenon? Well, um, it's true that there's some things that uh, uh, make, bring the two things together. Thousands of people uh, and more have come to Florida in, during Santos's uh, term. They left uh, mostly New York and the East Coast. They picked up everything and they moved. They moved to Florida. They, they voted with their feet. That's one of the elements of, of, of federalism that's overlooked is that people can move from one place to another, from one town to another, but from one state to another. And uh, Florida has been the greatest beneficiary of it. its population has gone up, its taxes are low. People have come, they say, I, I like Florida. It's a place where I can make money and, and, and live as, as DeSantis says, uh, uh, and, and be free. Uh, so so that's that, that's a great appeal. So I think it, it's, it, it's partly that, but I think also it's uh, DeSantis himself who has made himself a, a very appealing uh, candidate and brought people um, who, uh, weren't sure about him when he first ran for a governor and have now found in him something very, very appealing. And so uh, uh, that, that's the source of his strength. And whether this will continue, I mean, people may, may attribute some of the voting for uh, uh, DeSantis to, DeSantis, uh, to, to a change of parties, but all, all, it may just be that they like DeSantis. Um, candidate quality clearly matters, right? I mean, one of the things that we sometimes overlook in looking at the macro forces and the red wave and this sort of thing is that narrative overlooks the reality of the divided electorate, as you were saying, and the fact that there was almost parity going into this election. So the likelihood of a giant shift was actually really not there in the way that had been portrayed in the media. But the other thing is candidate quality matters. Um, and we have a question here from uh, one of our listeners again, I think connected to Ron DeSantis, is do you see senators or governors as the likely or best source of future candidates for the parties? Oh, yeah, that, uh, that's a tough one. Uh, people raise that question an awful lot. People say they go to the Senate because they want to become president. But I think a governor who performs well is always going to have an advantage uh, over a senator. Uh, because senators are essentially talkers, they may they, they may be good talkers, but but they are but they are talkers. A governor has something that say I, I can do. I did this. Now it's true that they're more obscure. Take D D Mike Dewine. I guess has been pretty good, but I haven't heard much about him. You know, he, he he's in this state, and you know, yes. Excuse me, one second. I'm 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 busy. Yeah, there was someone here come come was knocking at my door, but um. Uh, they have a record that they can rely on, and people uh, like to see uh, a record. Someone can point to and say, I did this, I did that. So when it comes with a strong personality, I think that that's probably the superior position. Um, you know, in the 19th century, there was always someone from New York running for, for a governor from New right. York. <laughs> and someone from Ohio. <laughs> yeah. We've had some senators, though, that have uh, ran and uh, um, the, uh, uh, and not always one, John Kerry among them. 
But um, uh, I think governors, I, I, I'd rather be a governor. Um, you're looking at this, you've studied the history of American elections all the way back from the time of the founding till now. Um, his, thinking of puts it, put this midterm in historical context. What, 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 if you look at the lessons of history, what do you see in this midterm? Is it like other midterms we've had before? Is it like other elections or is there something different and unique historically about this one? Well, if you actually go through and, and try and lay things out, it, it is a little bit unique. We've already mentioned the fact that, and we've mentioned the fact that um, the, the party of the president almost always loses a lot of seats in the midterm election. So this didn't happen this time. I mean, uh, they're, they're going to lose some seats, but 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 there's some explanations of that. The more important thing of, is, is that, of that statistic is not that you lose seats. It's where you begin from. If you're already, uh, you know, way ahead and you lose a few seats, you know, it doesn't really matter. No one comments on it except maybe some political science scientists. It's the the possibility of switching parties in the in the majority. That's the real fact, and that has happened significantly to, uh, in in many cases. Uh, a few cases, uh, Gingrich being uh, one, one example. It didn't happen. That's what people expected would happen this time. That it would be a large shift. There's still, uh, uh, so so we haven't seen that um, th th this time. So uh, I wouldn't put too much in it. Uh, a couple of questions about specific races, um, and two, in fact, race in Pennsylvania. Curious to know how it is that Fetterman defeated Oz. You mentioned the victory, and you said our reasons. I think we'd like to hear what you think some of those reasons are. Yeah, uh, I mean. Uh, uh, Oz is a, in, in some ways attractive candidate. He's well-spoken. Um, but I, I think looking at Pennsylvania, which they, after you get out of uh, Philadelphia, they say it's uh, it's really Alabama all the way to Ohio. Um, I, I think what uh, Fetterman was able to portray, and I'm not sure that it's just that he was able to portray something of a genuineness. Here's this guy who you know, went through this medical crisis and he sort of stood up as an average Joe, and he 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 pursued he 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 persisted in in the campaign. I think he he presented a sort of genuineness versus someone who's more from a, a, largely from another state who could be accused of being a a, a little bit different and media slick. And um, if if I look at that, that that would be a factor. I, I thought he was a strong candidate, uh, Oz. You know, uh, well spoken, but. There, there was something in, in a television personality that uh, pe people strangely don't like. They like the television people as much as you think they were, who consider themselves, of course, stars and superstars. A lot of them aren't aren't genuine. So I think I think that hurt hurt them. And I think uh, Fetterman was able to portray that idea of of being the the, the real thing with all the problems that uh, attach to it. As I said. Look, look to their actual history and say, you could ask whether that's true. I, I think it's dubious, but but he, I think that's one reason why he was able to win. Uh, you've, you've observed and thought about a, a lot of elections. Maybe nothing surprises you anymore. I don't know. But if something did, what's the most surprising thing to you about these 2022 elections? Well, uh, uh, the most surprising thing is, uh, in some ways, Fetterman's victory. Uh, I, I didn't think he would win. But um, the, the polls had showed him ahead all the time until recently. 
So um, he had had this, this uh, uh, very strong following inside the, the state. Uh, so that, that's one uh, thing that's surprising. I think we have a, a star in the Republican Party that's been born. Whether, whether he's going to try and pursue the presidency, I'm not sure. But we have a genuine star. I think that there's a, a recognition of that. And he's going to have to make some decision whether he wants to risk his uh, status this time against uh, Donald Trump whether he's going to be pushed to, to do this by people of the party or not. So I think those are the, the, the really more significant national thing is a, a star has been born in the, in the Republican Party. What was maybe the least surprising to you? Um, it certainly wasn't the outcome. Uh, uh, I, I would say... <laughs> you know, you know, watching TV, I saw, I kind of try to look at the networks, the TV networks from uh, a little bit of MSNBC and a little bit Fox. So, so I look at them, and I, I think by the end that MSNBC, uh, part of the campaign, um, of course they were pro-Democrat, but I think they were convinced or near being as convinced that this was going to be a wave election, um, and and they're and listening to them and listening to. The, uh, the take on Fox News, not that they were irresponsible, you could say that they were, but that they they were convinced that it was going to be a wave election. So um, uh, that, that was sort of the, uh, the, the background to this. And, and I think, uh, as I mentioned, they, they didn't appreciate what was actually going on. And I followed them in thinking maybe up to the last day that it was going to be a, a, a blowout. I did uh, look at many of the polls, but I don't put much... Uh, much um, credence in the polls, really. Is it going to be, make a prediction for us, if you'll go out on a limb here? Is I, it I'll go out on a limb because I've been wrong so often that uh, <laughs> I, 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 it's a badge <laughs> of honor. <laughs> Biden versus Trump in 2024. Yeah, uh, I would say that... Uh, uh, I mean, it's going to depend a lot on the next two years. It's uh, performance is going to uh, be important. If, if Biden can, uh, in the next two years, uh, overcome the inflation and, and say, uh, here was my program. We faced difficulty the first two years, but I had a perfect solution and everything's worked out. I think that puts Biden in, 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 a, in a stronger position. Of course, there's also the question of how Biden is going to look in two years. Uh, I think given his weaknesses, that you know, um, I don't want you want to use the word that he's over the hill, but uh, you know there's so many uh, problems that he's had. I mean, it's mistake after mistake after mistake. We didn't see it today in the press conference. He was better than usual, but um, really, he's uh, the way he's conducted himself as president is kind of an embarrassment. Many of the things that he says that are just completely untrue or or misstatements or inability to collect his thoughts. That that's going to be important. What's he going to be like in in two years? So um, I would still say all things can, uh, that, that would be the determining factor. Biden can, can write the record and uh, uh, have, have a pretty good two years. I, I think uh, he'd have a good chance of beating Trump. Fascinating. Well, we'll see, I guess. That's right. <laughs> but we won't hold if, it if he runs. <laughs> Political scientists are famous for being wrong, right? <laughs> they, they, they certainly are. They own that. Well, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us this evening. 
to give your insight and your thoughts on this election. As you say, we're not done with it. We're, we're still going to find out uh, who controls the House of Representatives, who controls the Senate, at least for the next little while until 2024. Uh, some great thoughts for us to consider as we move forward. Yes. So, Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it a lot. And I want to thank everybody else in this conversation. Thank you for all your many questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them, but really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. A link to a recording of this webinar will be sent to you. So please share it widely with your friends, your family, coworkers, anybody who wants uh, to get a sense of the insights uh, into the meaning of this 2022 election. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Ashbrook Center, for more information, please go to our website. It's very simple, ashbrook.org, uh, to learn about what we're doing around the country in educating students, teachers, and citizens. We really believe that if we think about and understand our fundamental principles that guide our republic, we can use those to think about contemporary issues and shed some light on those. So thank you very much for joining us. Uh, every election brings a lot of fear, but also a lot of hope for the future of the republic. And we try at Ashbrook to always stay hopeful. So as I always like to say, including stay healthy, stay hopeful, and stay connected with Ashbrook. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.